The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Afternoons with Mike right here on the Shepherd Radio Network. Heard every day at this time in Ocala, the Villages, Gainesville, and of course, our home base in the Orlando area. On the line with me, a return guest, Katie Tolento, is with the Alliance of Healthcare Sharing Ministries. Now, we hear a lot about healthcare. We hear a lot about sharing. And uh, through commercials from some of the bigger organizations uh, and also uh, to our audience, to you, we've had Katie on with her organization before. So we have an opportunity to hear from her again today and talk about this most important thing to a lot of our listeners, and that is what's going on in healthcare. So with all of that as an introduction, welcome back, Katie. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. You know, this uh, this is really a big issue. It's gotten a, a kind of like crazy big for people as baby boomers like myself get older and we are all kind of in this, those of us that are boomers are in this point right now to where we've gone through several cycles in our lifetime. We've seen what was considered to be traditional insurance and we want to talk about the difference between what you're doing and what the healthcare sharing ministries of today are doing. The, the, putting those two things side by side, we know that what you're doing is not traditional insurance. And I think that needs to be said up front, right? That's exactly right. Yes. Healthcare sharing is sort of like a homeschool co-op for healthcare. Yes. So we're going to get into all of that and more. In a moment, let's find out just a little bit more about Katie, though. Uh, give us a little bit of your background. What part of the country did you grow up in? Yeah, so I was born in Texas. My family and extended family were from Texas, but we moved to the East Coast in uh, Virginia when I was little. And, um, and then shortly thereafter, we moved up to the D.C. area. And that's really when I was about seven. And we, that's really where I grew up and where I consider home, even though I'm a little embarrassed by that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't think of a reason why. <laughs> no, it's the football team. It's also embarrassing. But uh, no, it's, there are many reasons. You know, this, uh, you're from, again, the D.C. area now then. What part of, uh, of Virginia? Is it Virginia? Is it Maryland? Where are you up there? Yeah, I, I right now I'm in Leesburg, Virginia, in Loudoun County, part of the Loudoun County Parents Resistance. And uh, but I grew up in Fairfax County, and most of my adulthood was spent actually in the city, uh, mm -hmm. generally on Capitol Hill. But when I got married, I we moved out to the suburbs, and so we've been here for about nine or ten years. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in uh, Fairfax area, and also on up toward Gaithersburg, uh, that whole area. It, it's yeah. a it's a big area, man. You don't want to get stuck on that. Uh, that the interstate system up there, it's kind of crazy. And I, I know that you deal with that still every day. Well, I'm not commuting anymore. Thank goodness. I'm able to do most of what I do uh, remotely. So I don't have to drive into the city, but there, I, I was working in the white house and driving in at, you know, at six in the morning and 8 PM every night. It was horrible. 
was horrible. Wow, yeah, definitely. Now, Katie, you've you've got one of the most, I, I would say, diverse backgrounds in your Christian faith. Uh, tell us just a little bit about how you first came to know the Lord. And I know just as a, um, a kind of an explanation, Katie and I talked before recording this program, and you actually spent time in the Mormon church for a while and uh, you got out of that and thankfully you did and uh, you know no not trying to be offensive but uh, I think there's a big difference in what we believe and who who it is that we serve and I'm just grateful that you you were out of that uh, that particular area so tell us a little bit about your background Amen to that. Yeah. So I I was not particularly raised in a, a traditionally religious family, but um, and probably because of that, I was kind of an atheist by the time I was, you know, 12, 11, 13. And um, but I was a truth seeker and always have been. And um, so I, I my parents actually forced me to go to some retreat at some point. And that kind of opened my mind to God, like maybe there's a God. Um, and then a, a year or two later, I was uh, sort of pulled into the young life world, right, which is a wonderful, wonderful ministry to high schoolers and middle schoolers. And um, and I came to Jesus at a young life camp in Windy Gap, North Carolina, and um, have been walking and loving him ever since. Um, shortly thereafter, I mean, I was such a baby Christian. I didn't know any better. And, um, you know, some friends at school got me kind of uh, approached by the Mormon missionaries and you have, you know, two 19 year old Mormon missionary boys approaching a 14 year old girl, you know, yeah. giving her attention, yeah. what's going to happen. Right. So, um, so I, I just thought, you know, they said they were Christians. I thought they were. And um, it took me most of high school and a little bit of college to figure out that, you know, I think they might not be the same kind of Christian. Right. So um, yeah. So I got out of Mormonism early in college and was involved in fellowship of Christian athletes and, um, navigators and a lot of sort of mission and discipleship work. And I did all that through my twenties and thirties. So that's kind of my background. Oh, wow. Now you mentioned FCA. I have uh, people from FCA on my program regularly, love them. Uh, were you a student athlete yourself or were you just invited to the, the, the meetings that they had at the school? Yeah, it's funny. We liked to say at the time that if you sweat, you're an athlete. Um, I, I played a little bit of rugby in high school, but in no way could anyone call me an athlete. Um, that was really at the college I went to, University of Virginia. It was sort of just the main big like evangelical campus ministry. Mm -hmm. And, and it, you know, it was the one that had several hundred people. And so that's it was just it, it no longer is that there's another ministry now that is is that way at UVA, which is great. I welcome them all. Um, but they were extremely formative in my life. I probably learned more scripture in college than I learned of anything else. And I'm so grateful for that. Thank you know, God for them. I think that that is just a testimony to FCA right there because of the fact that it is more than just something, uh, a hangout group for uh, athletes who are on the school teams and maybe the top of their class and all of that with that. It's not that at all. They reach out to the whole student body and they're one of the most successful groups uh, in schools and that be being said high school as well as college in the country. And I think they are just continuing to do a great work. And it sounds like they were really great for you as was the navigators. And that's also another great ministry. I've got a lot of friends who are actually campus ministers and the navigators. And did you ever read anything from Jerry Bridges? 
Oh, of course. Yes. I mean, they, you know, SCA didn't really have any staff at UVA, if I recall. It was really a student organization. Mm-hmm. Um, at, many, many organizations at UVA are really only student run. It's sort of their culture. But um, there were navigator staff there and they were really important. And in fact, um, then when I went to graduate school, there was, um, uh, it, it was a medical ministry. I want to say it was like a medical spinoff of navigators. Um, and I can't remember the name of it, but there were wonderful staff there too, that really took care of the graduate students and the medical students. And, um, so yes, I'm so grateful for all those, uh, servants of the Lord that just sacrificed and raised their families, you know, on monthly support, right. Um, to, so that they could minister to, you know, young dum-dums like me. <laughs> like all of us, I'm telling you, that is such a great story. And I'm grateful that God really drew you in and that there were those kind of relationships early on that kind of brought you out of some of the directions that you were headed in and actually immersed in for a while. But God is faithful. And, uh, you know, I think it's something for all parents right now. You may have, uh, we may have some parents listening whose children are maybe. Uh, diving off into a, a real concerning thing, uh, I, my word today would be never give up on them, pray for them. And, you know, God's done a real work in you, obviously, and bringing you through the things that you've gone through and all of it to take us to where we are today in our lives as we serve the Lord. And uh, we can look back and wish we uh, could have, should have, ought to have done some things differently. But, you know, God is, he's God over all of that. Our past, our failures, as well as the good decisions that that we've made and that you continue to make. And so grateful for this story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. And I, I should, I should end the story a little bit with the fact that I, I said that my parents, you know, didn't really raise me in a religious home, but I prayed for many years for them and they came to Christ probably when I was in my thirties or maybe I think my thirties or forties. And, um, and they just love Jesus so much. And so I'm just so grateful for, you know, it, not only should you be praying for your kids, but your lost parents can come around to you. So it's really wonderful. That is so true. And even if uh, their faith was nominal in the life of, of a young person growing up, it's never too late even for the parents to come to a real meaningful place, like you said, to come to the Lord as an adult and uh, and really uh, get on fire for God. I just think that is so important. Well, what was your path to being in the healthcare sharing ministry? How did you get there? Yeah. So, you know, growing up in Washington, I always sort of had an aversion to government, even though everyone else was worked in government, but I, I never really respected government very much. Didn't want to be there. Um, and so I was, I went a different path. I was sort of wanted to go to Africa and quarantine towns and stuff. And I, I studied epidemiology and I worked on HIV AIDS and malaria. And, um, but eventually I came back and I, I had, I lived on Capitol Hill. I had friends on Capitol Hill and I went to church on Capitol Hill. And so of course I was going to run into some Capitol Hill staffers and they were friends of mine. And at some point I just got coerced and drafted and recruited um, to a particular job, a public health job um, in the United States Senate. And um, and so that started my government career. I, I, I was a little embarrassed at how much I enjoyed sort of the combative nature and the adversarial approach that you have to take um, to get things done, but also the way you have to negotiate and, and work with the other side to get things done. And I learned so much to, about how to do that over the years. I think it's a lost art these days. 
It sounds um, like you would have really enjoyed being in the uh, the hall of the house last week, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm so grateful I was not. Yes, we we used to look down our noses when at, from the Senate at the house. Um, yeah, we we say you know I think it was Jesse Helms used to say that. You know, there's a reason why you have to walk down six steps to get to the house side of the Capitol. Oh, but, um, <laughs> <wow>. yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah, so the house is chaos. It's anarchy over there. But um, yeah, so I was in the Senate off and on. I was always trying to get out because, again, I, I couldn't believe I couldn't really I couldn't really live with the fact that I was making my career in government as like a government parasite. So um, I was always trying to get out and find some respectable job. So I would leave for a year or two, come back. So I worked for five different senators um, on and off and um, committees. I, I mostly did healthcare, And then eventually when you get promoted, you kind of do all issues and you oversee other other policy staffers. And um, so I did a lot of government oversight, worked for oversight committees and um, and a lot of healthcare. And then um, around 2015 or 16, um, this crazy man from New York came down the escalator. And so he was running. Um, Donald Trump was running for president and he was winning all these primaries. And a friend of mine was working on his campaign and just looked so disheveled all the time. It was not sleeping, was chain smoking. And so I, you know, I offered to help just wanting to help him. And so I got pulled into Trump world, which was a, a wild ride and super fun. And um, certainly the most fun boss I ever had worked in the white house for a few years. And in that, in that capacity, both on Capitol Hill and in the executive branch, um, I was often working on, ways to develop innovative healthcare approaches. You know, we were seeing costs, you know, just skyrocketing um, for decades. And certainly with the ACA, things were worse um, for everyday families who couldn't afford um, their healthcare, but also didn't qualify for ACA subsidies. And so there were a number of alternatives, whether alternatives to ACA plans that were insurance alternatives or non-insurance alternatives. And I talked to outside groups a lot about those, and we try to um, expand those options for people We in terms of the regulations we passed and the legislation we supported. Um, and one of those alternatives, of course, and one of those groups that we talked to was the Alliance of Healthcare Sharing Ministries, and healthcare sharing ministries are a really important alternative, especially for people of faith, if they want to sort of escape the um, broken status quo that we see in insurance and healthcare uh, cost problems. And so when I left government, um, I went out on my own, was just consulting, and I was generally consulting for um, alternative type healthcare disruptors, I would put it, you know, health savings account groups, patient uh, price transparency groups, which was a really important issue I'd worked on in government. Um, and the healthcare sharing folks were looking for a new leader. And so um, they became a, a big client of mine and still are. And, and I serve as their executive director. Um, and that means that I get to advocate for the freedom of Christians across the country to join and stay in healthcare sharing ministries at the state level and at the federal level. And we spend a lot of time explaining and educating policymakers about what healthcare sharing is, um, talking to the media and getting out our message out, just like I'm doing right now, and and really praying. We pray a lot for that freedom to persist. We're seeing a lot of assaults on that now. We are and have been really uh, in America for a number of years now. Now, you you were brought into the White House, as you said, under President Trump. And by then, uh, obviously, we've all encountered and 
maybe got burned by this thing that you were referring to, the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, which had obviously happened under Obama, and it happened very quickly in 2008. I mean, I we all that that path. I'll never forget the path, the image of watching. Uh, the House of Representatives walk over to the Senate in, in what looked like almost a line dance. It was, it was really scary to realize how quickly uh, they, they drew together to change the whole gamut of American health care in what seemed like over just a couple of days. And the, the line of Nancy Pelosi saying, we got to pass all of this to see what's in it and all, all, all of that. It's crazy, isn't it, to see the changes that you would have had happen right before you went to work for Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, that took place in 2000, late 2008, after the election of President Obama, um, and that, but really took place over 2009. And it's right. funny because... Right. Um, I, I had friends who gave me a hard time that, you know, if only I'd been there, I could have stopped, <laughs> which of course isn't true. But what actually happened is um, I left, I was working for Tom Coburn, Senator Tom Coburn from Oklahoma, total warrior, love him. And, um, and may he rest in peace. He passed away a couple of years ago and um, I was working for him, but I was still trying to get out of government. So thank God I was out of government when, we lost the Senate. We lost the White House. Oh, we yeah. had the Affordable Care Act was passed. And so um, like it was it was a train wreck. Every everything. As soon as I left it, everything fell apart. So um, I, I had to come back and save America. There you go. Well, we're glad you're working as you are working right now. And I'm talking today to Katie Tolento. She's the uh, director of the Alliance for Healthcare Sharing Ministries and is very involved in all of these things that are going on as an advocate, as she mentioned, for uh, the American people and this option that we've been given uh, that is actually, for many, uh, a real answer to prayer because healthcare, the insurance world, changed so dramatically, has been and continues to change in ways that many people can't afford any other type of insurance, but they're not without healthcare, thankfully, because of this. We'll be back with Katie in a moment. This is Afternoons with Mike, and you're on The Shepherd. Palm Beach Atlantic University, Orlando, offers three distinct areas of study. An evening Master's of Science in Clinical Mental Health Counseling, an evening Bachelor's of Science in Human Services, and our new Daytime Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. All of our courses are offered at our beautiful campus on Millennia Boulevard. For more information or to schedule a tour, call 844-PBA-ORLANDO. That's 844-PBA-ORLANDO. She is the director of the Alliance of Healthcare Sharing Ministries, Katie Tolento, uh, already outlined a number of years of her life working in the D.C. area, working in the Senate, working with President Trump in the White House. Were you actually officed in the White House? Yep, I was on the 18 acres right there. I drove into the big gates every day. Um, I couldn't believe they, they let me in, but they, you know, they make they put the dogs all around your car and everything. It's pretty cool. Wow. That is, that's crazy uh, to, to think about just the, the epicenter of so much in the world. Still to this day, people will look at that. And I, I, for one, believe Americans have way too much of an exalted opinion about, about the president, the role of the president. And it, it is supposed to, our founding fathers would have made this, we, the people, 
and not so much uh, an endearing of uh, of that office, but you can't tell that to a lot of Americans today, right? Yeah, I think I don't know if it started with the Kennedys, you know, where the, the presidency becomes this kind of royalty. You know, it's uh, it's a little weird um, and, and out of whack from the founding vision, as you point out. Yeah, I think it is as well. Now, you were there during all of this time and we were talking about at the end of our last segment, the impact that came about with Obamacare, with the introduction of this thing called the Affordable Care Act, which has to be the most misnamed, that one uh, and the Respect for Marriage Act that was recently passed, they have to be kind of at the very top of the list for government programs that were named completely wrongly (laughs) because the ACA is anything but affordable. Would you agree? Yeah, neither affordable nor caring. Um, yeah, I, I certainly think that's. I certainly think that's right. It, it it certainly reminds me of you know Orwell in in high school reading 1984. Right. We really have this like Ministry of Truth trying to convince us of things. But um, to be fair, I mean, I, you know, I want to be fair because the Affordable Care Act has survived for reasons. Um, it has survived for reasons. There are reasons that it has survived, and it is popular with the voters. And every attempt by my party to uh, repeal or replace it have failed. And there are reasons for that. So um, it does, in fact, subsidize millions and millions of people and gives them access to free or low cost insurance coverage. Um, That doesn't that's not the same thing as care, but um, at least they get insurance. Um, So I I don't want to I don't want to speak too ill of it, but because of its structure, um, and how the authors of the bill, you know, created that safety net, it created it in such a way that really drove up the price of insurance for everyone else who wasn't getting subsidized, including people in the who get their insurance on the job. So the entire commercial insurance market was really, really devastated in terms of cost of the end user by the changes in law that the ACA created. But I will say this. Um, the one wonderful thing about the Affordable Care Act is they exempted members of healthcare sharing ministries from the mandate that you have to purchase insurance. And they defined healthcare sharing ministries in federal law for the first time. Um, so we consider that to be, you know, the shining gem, the diamond in the in the coal mine, I guess, of um of 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 the bill. And so certainly that's been an important uh, piece of our religious freedom picture. Um, and we wouldn't want that piece to be repealed. Um, so even though there's no individual mandate, uh, penalty anymore, you don't, you know, the penalty is zero since 2017. Um, that doesn't mean that the mandate itself is gone. It's still law that you have to have a qualified health plan. Um, even though there's no penalty for not having it anymore. Yeah, it is uh, this thing of subsidies. That's something that I think a lot of people don't understand, that part of the plan of the ACA was to have a government subsidy for every family, that basically it's almost like they are adding money to the pot to drive down your cost of health care. So it's not like a plan that is affordable and is built on its own kind of uh, self-existing 
consistent uh, way of, of being there for you. It's not like somebody that's developed a computer that can be made affordably and then offered on the open market for sale. It's almost like instead, it's almost like the government saying, hey, we're we're going to create this thing for you. And here's a few bucks that we're going to kick in. And, and, you know, they're going to have to do that for the rest of the life for that thing to stay the same. And that's what changed for Cindy and me is that when I, when I joined, when I left uh, the plan that we were on to go on to Medicare, uh, it, uh, the ACA for us for just to cover Cindy was anything but affordable. It was $1,800 a month is what her premium would have been. $1,800 a month for one person. And well, so, you can see why they have to mandate that you buy that because no one would buy that <laughs> in their right mind. That's if they right. Required to. Yeah. So uh, we we couldn't do that. It wasn't something that we a could afford. B even if we could, I wouldn't have because it was just it's just really a bad thing. It's a bad product. And so in my mind, I don't. I know that you're that you're saying that it, a lot of people do have this thing, but you know, this thing was sold originally as being free insurance, free healthcare. That was, those were the words that were tossed about and on uh, talk shows on late night, like Saturday night live, there were things like we need to have free healthcare like Europe does or like England does. And it, that just wasn't a good representation about what the ACA could ever produce. Right. Well, I mean, the, the sad truth, Mike, is that millions and millions of people are getting free insurance. They're not the same thing as healthcare, but they're getting free insurance through the subsidies. The, the subsidies have been expanded dramatically. They were uh, expanded. I mean, they were already millions of people. 80% of people who buy insurance on the exchanges, whether they're state exchange or the federal exchange, were getting subsidized. So they were getting mostly free coverage, if not totally free coverage. Now, during COVID, the Congress expanded those subsidies. So, and, you know, the subsidies had been basically if you, the original law was basically if, if you, um, if your family makes between 250, you know, between 0% of poverty and 250% of poverty, you got completely free care and all your out-of-pocket costs were covered too. Now, if, if you went up to 400% of poverty, so four times the federal poverty level, um, your income was, then you would get mostly free insurance, but your out-of-pocket wasn't covered, which is significant because the out-of-pocket on these plans are, is huge. But under COVID, it's now been dramatically increased to bring even more people under those subsidies. Because of course, what we saw in the first five years of, these, of the law being implemented, premiums doubled and deductibles more than tripled. So, um, you know, and, and you'll recall, I remember during the 2016 presidential campaign, we were talking a lot about these insurers that were fleeing the exchanges. They, they didn't want to be, they didn't want any part of this. Right. It was a very unstable market. The first thing we did when we got into the White House was create a regulation that would stabilize the market to try to keep insurers in the market because, uh, you know, people needed insurance and this was the structure we had. But the reason why we can't um, repeal and replace this sort of monstrosity that's driven costs up is because, you know, you can never you can never compete with Santa. And when you're giving people free insurance, it's really hard to compete with. Well, what if we gave you insurance that costs a little bit less but isn't free? <laughs> well, that wasn't going to fly. And and also, um, 
you know, one of the really clever things that the authors of the ACA did was they expanded Medicaid. So the real number of people that were so-called helped by the Affordable Care Act were those that, I mean, many, many more people got free Medicaid insurance than got free uh, ACA coverage. So, you know, right now, after COVID, they expanded this even more. Right now, something like between one third and one quarter of all Americans have Medicaid coverage. Wow. That is unprecedented. That is. Just a few years ago, it was one in six, which I thought was too high. Right? And, to, and to me, this is such a warning because to get that kind of coverage under Medicaid, you basically give the government everything that you have in your bank account, in your portfolio. I mean, it's basically mm -hmm. gone, right? Well, you have to spend down your assets, most of them, and um, unless you are a certain category. So there, there are some categories of eligibility for people with disabled children, for instance, who um, are children with disabilities who, you know, their income requirements aren't quite as tight. So they don't have to spend every dollar they have. But, yes, it's very scary. And and you add that to um you add that to the 50, 45 or 50 million Americans who are on Medicare, right? That's our safety net program for this, for seniors. Um, then you're talking about the majority of Americans are on a government healthcare program. Mm -hmm. So I really think that these authors of the ACA, and then you add the 15 million that are on subsidies for the ACA exchanges, right? So now we're talking about 90 million on Medicaid, 45 million on Medicare, 15 million getting subsidies on the ACA. That's well over half the country. Wow. And so taxpayers are paying for the health care of everyone else and they have to pay for their own. Right. It's a very it's a narrowing number of employed working age people and their businesses that are paying the taxes for all of this and their own health care. And a lot of people say that that's exactly what this is producing. It's almost producing a welfare by design, state. By design. By design. Yeah. By design. So again, uh, whether or not they want to admit it, they're creating a, a group of people, a nation, like you said, the numbers are staggering. The percentages of our country, population-wise, are, are becoming more and more and more dependent upon the government for these things and that's why it is so difficult if not downright impossible to ever reverse out some of the bad decisions that were made they're not they're not uh they're they're kind of like the old saying uh you know, penny up uh, uh, pound what is it penny wise and pound foolish or something like yes, that yeah it, it, it's really we're we're spiting ourselves we're shooting ourselves in the the financial feet by by giving into this and yet that's what we've done and now we have the question how in the world do we ever get out about it so my question for you right now for the balance of this a particular segment is this what should this new congress now that just came in and there's been a turnover in in congress leadership uh now mccarthy is the speaker of of the house what is congress going to do what can the house do if anything to help bring all of this to a, a point of sanity Right. Well, that that's a great question. I mean, I, I think it's important that we manage expectations. There, there are not going to be any partisan agendas that are passed. Right. Like we've got a split Congress, um, a Democratic White House. And so any part any partisan agendas, I think, are going to have trouble getting through, which is uh, concerning. Right. Because because there is a lot of good policy <laughs> that is associated with one side. Um, <clears throat> and so. I think it's going to be hard for a Republican Congress to to 
pass an affirmative agenda. But there are some bipartisan uh, policies that we could embrace and that could get through and that are very popular with voters. And I would say the top of that list is a policy called price transparency. And what that really means is ending secret prices in healthcare. There's no other industry on earth that you, you know, that that is a life or death service or product that you need to consume and that you don't know the price in advance. You have to agree, sign away your financial rights to pay whatever they charge. You get a bill in the mail three months later. You had no idea what it was going to be. It's probably a, a bankrupting size of bill. And, you know, you you have no power to do anything about it. You're just on the hook for it. And, you know, when you think about uh, when there is no, when you don't know the price in advance, well, the sellers of the thing can charge whatever they want, whatever they want. There's absolutely no price competition that governs every other industry. And so that's why, I mean, that's the main reason. We talk a lot about the ACA, but the main reason why healthcare costs are so out of control is not for any market-based reason. It's not because, gosh, it's really expensive to like, you know, it's not like diamonds you have to mine out of the earth, right? It's not like it's really expensive to deliver healthcare. You know, healthcare itself is not expensive. What's expensive is price gouging, fraud, waste, bureaucracy. And, um, and, and so we just see massive amounts of price gouging, waste, fraud, and bureaucracy in this business because there's absolutely no accountability. And the end user has no way to shop for price or even evaluate value at all. I mean, value is the, you know, it's the sum of price plus quality, right? Mm-hmm. And in in healthcare, we don't know, we have no way to evaluate quality. I mean, we just see billboards on the highway, come to our hospital, we're the best. Or, we're, you know, my, my sister's aunt's uh, brother gave, you know, had, had great success with her cancer surgery, so go to her surgeon. You know, we have no way to evaluate quality. And we certainly have no way to evaluate price, or at least we haven't for most of America's history. Well, or most of, you know, recent history, the past hundred years. Well, the, the great thing that happened, I guess, during the Trump administration um, is that President Trump enacted a few regulations that would require hospitals to show their secret prices that they negotiate with insurers for the very first time and their cash prices for people who are not insured and members of healthcare sharing ministries. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he also required insurance companies to do the same thing, right? So we want to know your secret prices with hospitals and non-hospital providers. And both of those regulations were in part codified by the Congress. They were wildly bipartisan, wildly popular. They poll over 90% support. And so it was really hard for the Congress to resist the efforts to try to get this done and to try to undo it, even though every Swampian special interest in the you know, DC healthcare swamp came out to try to beat us down. It was, I've never got, I've never heard such ridiculous lobbying arguments uh, against showing consumers prices. Um, but they lost. And the President Trump, he did not care one bit about the healthcare swap and he pushed it. And then Congress codified it in what I call a Christmas miracle. At the end of 2020, um, Congress passed this, you know, codified some of these regulations and required price transparency and an end to surprise billing. Um, and so those 
those policies are just now, you know, they were they were codified back then. They're just now taking effect. Hmm. The hospital transparency rule has been in effect now for two years and compliance with it is pretty abysmal. Most hospitals are just kind of um, pretending to put to put the file on their website that they're required to put. Um, they make it very hard to find. It's very hard to download that file. It's very hard to read and use that file. They do not make it easy. They want to make you put in all your insurance information and just show you your own out-of-pocket with your own insurance plan. They don't, they don't do what's required by the reg, which is show every insurance plan's price. You don't have to put in any information to see all of that. Um, so compliance is improving very slowly over time, um, but I think we'll get there. Insurance hmm. companies, their effective date uh, started this past summer, and they've been doing a better job at compliance. So um, they have stiffer penalties for noncompliance in their rule. And so we've seen decent compliance efforts. What we haven't seen just yet is a broad adoption and use of this information by everyday consumers. What we have seen is... Um, like vendors and startups that are scraping up this data because it's all over, it's hard to use right now, scraping it up and creating, starting to create, you know, user-friendly platforms where you can start to shop. Um, we're starting to see those. I think we're going to see more and more of that in the coming years and it will really be disruptive in the marketplace and we'll start to have actual price transparency. So let's pick up well, uh, price transparency again in a moment. I'm up against a break. Katie Tolento is my guest. This is Afternoons with Mike. EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat serves all your comfort needs. With over 40 years experience, EC Waters is a top trained comfort specialist, earning customers for life with integrity. No wonder EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat has earned a 4.6 or higher out of 5 rating and reviews across all major online platforms. For all your comfort needs, call 407-603-9144 or visit ecwaters.com. Learning a lot about the whole healthcare sharing world and healthcare in general. With me today, my guest is Katie Tolento, who is a part of uh, this this whole thing called the Alliance for Healthcare Sharing Ministries, and she leads this organization. She's uh, as a director in it, and spent many years uh, in the White House as well as in the Senate, and understands really what Americans often don't understand the true state of where things are. And we were talking about at the end of segment two, uh, the, the need for these organizations, both insurance companies and hospitals, to comply with what happened two years ago at the end of Trump's term with what you called the Christmas miracle, the, the changing where there's supposed to be uh, an end to all of the transparent or, or the uh, hidden costs to ensure price transparency. But you were telling us that a, a lot of places are not yet really up to snuff when it comes to being really transparent, right? Yeah, that's right. Hospitals are really dragging their feet. They do not want this to happen. They recognize that it is an existential threat to their business model of price gouging and um, exploiting the poor. So, um, you know, I think that what Congress could do, I mean, that's the, the original question that <laughs> launched me on that rant. Um, what Congress could do is, they need to crack down on noncompliance, but also, um, you know, they need to stiffen the penalties. And the, I, I, I would recommend that they um, threaten the tax exempt status of all these chair, so-called charity hospitals 
if they don't comply with price transparency. Um, you know, we're starting to see a lot of calls, and, and we talked about in the last segment about how so much of healthcare now is being paid for by government. And, you know, you see a lot of calls by some of our friends on the left side of the aisle as the solution for this price gouging is, well, we should just have government set the prices and um, and that would keep costs low. And and I would argue, <laughs> well, you know, yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe that's a reasonable solution. A lot of countries have adopted that solution. But before we adopt such a radical solution that's kind of antithetical to our free market system, what if instead of setting the prices, we just showed the price? <laughs> so let, let's try that first um, before we before we go crazy. So uh, Congress can really um, put their you know boot on the, the neck of these price gougers and price hiding hospitals and doctors and facilities. Um, and I really think that they should. But, you know, the, the next thing that that I think is really important is to recognize that the majority of hospitals in every town are nonprofit, so-called nonprofit charity hospitals that are tax exempt. You have to pay your taxes. They don't. And they are eating up all the real estate in your town and they are eating up all the independent doctor practices in your town so that they can charge more and profit more. And these are like, you know, a lot of them have a lot of them are Christian organizations, it's, you know, St. Luke or, you know, Mission or Mercy Hospital. And they have mission statements where they're supposed to be, you know, we, we want to be the hands of Jesus Christ in this community. You know, come on. They are the absolute bond villains of healthcare, And I do think that um, we Congress really needs to look at the tax exempt status of these organizations and to start to put a number of conditions on um, on retaining that tax exemption. So if you want to be, and I think that would have bipartisan support, it's not a partisan uh, policy at all. Um, and it would have uh, broad support among the people. If you said, hey, if you're a charity hospital, don't you think that they should have to show their prices? Don't you think that they should not take their patients to court and sue them and garnish their wages when they can't afford their bills? Don't you think that they should have to, um, you know, disclose their conflicts of interest? And and their uh, unfair deals with insurance insurance companies. So we think that that's reasonable. Um, it certainly would help members of healthcare sharing ministries, of course, who are not insured and are paying cash prices and need to be able to find those cash prices. Um, healthcare sharing ministries often invest a lot of resources in in helping uh, patients and their members to shop for high value care and to send people to lower cost, highest quality places. You know, that information's hard to get, it's hard to use, as I mentioned, and the quality information's hard to get and hard to use. And so they invest a lot of resources in developing that information and sending their people to those right facilities. But that information should be broadly available for all Americans. You know, the the presence of the government's kind of role in all of this uh, is has been seen greatly in what is not brought out, what is not told, what may be being stopped, but behind the scenes, we don't even know it's being stopped. And I'm thinking of things like Big Pharma with uh, the medicine that was used to treat uh, the whole COVID crisis, hydrochloroquine and ivermectin. And, you know, these drugs, a lot of these drugs that were found to be effective were almost taken completely off the shelf. I know that we had, uh, even in Florida, we had the 
uh, the, what is the the clonal mo, what the monoclonal, monoclonal yeah antibodies. antibodies that were being given to people with great success and all of that is ended by the federal government why in in the name of people's health why do you think they're the, the media is allowing them to get away with it are they on the payroll too well yes uh, if you look at the the biggest advertisers for the cable news networks they are drug companies and so, yes, I do believe, and that's true of the print media as well. <clears throat> wow. I do think yeah. that they, not only are they ideologically aligned with, um, you know, the ideology that can't be, I, I guess Donald Trump breaks people, he just breaks them. And um, if he says, you know, the sky is blue, then the sky has to be red. And I think that because COVID started um, when Donald Trump was president, we saw the media taking whatever he says, whatever he does is wrong. And so they aligned themselves ideologically with whatever was opposite of what he was doing. And then um, when he left power, they, they were a little bit in a pickle because his policies were continued in many cases when it came to COVID. Um, and, and so they, they were in a pickle and they had to, so I, I think there are ideological reasons why, um, We've seen the sort of COVIDian ideology, but but I think there are also financial reasons. To your point, um, there are there are really a disgusting amount of undisclosed conflicts of interest, and I certainly think that when you're looking at the FDA, I mean, my goodness, if this Congress could bring some accountability to the FDA, it would uh, be a great service um, to the country. Mm-hmm. And I really think that. Um, one of the key problems that I'm seeing, especially in California, but around the country, is this um, muzzling of doctors. And I think the the lack of involvement of doctors and the ability, the freedom of doctors to exercise their judgment in the ways that they always have been able to up till now. So it never used to be that you had to justify to a pharmacist why you wrote a prescription. I mean, unless you wrote a prescription that was in error or it was in obvious um a contraindication for another drug that someone was taking. I mean, unless pharmacist is trying to help you not kill somebody, um, you know, they would, doctors are allowed to prescribe off-label drugs. Hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin were off-label drugs. Um, the, the founders, the makers of ivermectin were received Nobel prizes. So, um, because they were so safe and effective at saving so many lives in, in, in poor countries around the world, yeah. both of them. Yeah. And so these were some of the safest and most effective drugs ever approved. And so there was absolutely no downside to trying them in new diseases. Um, absolutely no downside. And so it was very strange what happened. But, you know, you could have disagreements. You could have scientific debate about whether they were effective, whether the trials were good or not good or whatever. The point is, is that never has the federal government or any government stifled uh, doctors from prescribing FDA approved drugs for other diseases. So, um, so that was a huge problem. And I think that freeing up doctors, uh, to practice medicine is really important. Um, unfortunately the Congress is a little bit, uh, hamstrung in what they can do because the practice of medicine is largely a, a matter for state governments. Um, but the feds have a lot of power through the purse strings. So they can certainly withhold federal funds if a state doesn't do X or Y or if they do X or Y. So a state like California, which is absolutely muzzled and censored um, doctors who do not po- toe the party line and who do not sort of 
um, talk about whatever the government says about vaccines or other drugs, doctors can lose their license in California. That is law today. And I would argue that that is a violation of uh, 26 different conscience laws. It's a violation of the First Amendment. And it's certainly a violation of um, the Nuremberg Code and of all our rules around informed consent. So the, the masks and vaccines and tests and all of these products, um, they are required. That there are a number of rules that the FDA is not enforcing right now around um, post-marketing, post-approval surveillance. We're supposed to be um, taking note of the adverse events that happen after these drugs are approved. Um, there was an absolute bait and switch fraud in terms of the drugs being approved, so-called approved by the FDA, but then the drug that was actually available in the United States was not approved by the FDA. That's still the case. We're still all putting into arms vaccines that are not FDA approved. They approved a, um, a, a companion drug, a mirror drug mm -hmm. that's only being offered outside of America so that they could you know, perpetrate a fraud on the United States and say, oh, look, it's FDA approved now, so we can mandate these vaccines. But it wasn't FDA approved, not the, not the version that's going in Americans' arms. And that's still the case, which means that the version that is going in Americans' arms is still under an emergency use authorization, which requires informed consent. So I yeah. think it's really important to think about what Congress can do to expose some of this fraud, because it was all censored to talk about it until recently. And I think certainly Elon Musk has done the country a service. You're now starting to see these debates go a little bit more mainstream because they've been unfettered on Twitter for the first time. Right. And, you know, he's dropping things all the time now on mm -hmm. the Twitter drop that is uh, exposing a lot of organizations. And I, I think all of us uh, should have a real interest in what's going on in the country right now, because it's that old thing of being sold a bill of goods. You know, we've heard that expression for many, many years. And sadly, I, I just um, hearing you say that our country is actually trying to pull the wool over a lot of our eyes from the very government itself, the very people that should be protecting its citizens is oft times the perpetrator in this process. And man, we're paying a great price for it. People are not getting medicines that would help them and maybe bring healing to their bodies. Uh, and they're paying outrageous prices for things that they don't even know what they're paying for. And so this is uh, why the Alliance is a good thing. Uh, just quickly to mention a couple of the organizations that would be part. I know that uh, MediShare would be one. Samaritan Ministries would be another. Uh, and there are others as well. How can people find out more and maybe get some hope in their future about health care in their lives? How can they find out more? Yes. Yeah, so they can visit our website at uh, www.ahcsm.org. That's our acronym for our name, Alliance of Healthcare Sharing Ministries, ahcsm.org. And you can read about our members. You mentioned two of them, MediShare and Samaritan. We also have OneShare Health, Altrua HealthShare, and Liberty HealthShare. And um, we, we invite everybody to visit our website and learn more about healthcare sharing. If you have questions, reach out to us. Um, and, you know, we're not going to tell you to go to one ministry or another. We love them all. But um, uh, we can certainly direct you to those ministries and get your questions answered. We recommend that everybody ask a lot of questions so that you are sure that the, the ministry that you're picking is the right fit. Um, and that, you know, not having insurance 
in, in an insurance policy is the right fit for you. But we think that these are a beautiful, beautiful way. We think this is how Jesus would do healthcare. So um, we, we love it. And we recommend it to all. Well, there are so many things that we didn't get to today. So you've got to have you back maybe in a month or so uh, if you can uh, carve out the time to be back with us here on the station. I appreciate you so much, Katie. My pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. And God bless your audience. All right. And friends, we'll see you next time right here on Afternoons with Mike.